Book Three, Chapter Two of The Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book Three, Chapter Two A Skirmish in the Dark. Thoroughly drenched and chilled, the two adventurers returned to their position in the gorse. "'I pray heaven that Capper made good speed,' said Dick. "'I vow a candle to St. Mary of Shoreby if he come before the hour.' "'Ye are in a hurry, Master Dick?' asked Greensheve. "'Aye, good fellow,' answered Dick. "'For in that house lieth my lady, whom I love, and who should these be that lie about her secretly by night? Unfriends, for sure!' Well, returned Greensheve, and John comes speedily, we shall give a good account of them. They are not two score at the outside, I judge so by the spacing of their sentries, and, taking where they are, lying so widely, one score would scatter them like sparrows. And yet, Master Dick, and she be in Sir Daniel's power already, it would little hurt that she should change into another's. Who should these be? I do suspect the Lord of Shoreby. Dick replied. When came they? They began to come, Master Dick, said Greensheve, about the time you crossed the wall. I had not lain there the space of a minute ere I marked the first of the knaves crawling round the corner. The last light had already been extinguished in the little house when they were waiting in the wash of the breakers, and it was impossible to predict at what moment the lurking men about the garden wall might make their onslaught. Of two evils, Dick preferred the least. He preferred that Joanna should remain under the guardianship of Sir Daniel, rather than pass into the clutches of Lord Shoreby, and his mind was made up, if the house should be assaulted, to come at once to the relief of the besieged. But the time passed, and still there was no movement. From quarter of an hour to quarter of an hour, the same signal passed about the garden wall as if the leader desired to assure himself of the vigilance of his scattered followers. But in every other particular, the neighbourhood of the little house lay undisturbed. Presently Dick's reinforcements began to arrive. The night was not yet old before nearly a score of men crouched beside him in the gorse. Separating these into two bodies, he took the command of the smaller himself, and entrusted the larger to the leadership of Greensheve. Now, Kit, said he to this last, take me your men to the near angle of the garden wall upon the beach, post them strongly, and wait till you hear me falling on upon the other side. It is those upon the sea-front that I would fain make certain of, for there will be the leader. The rest will run, even let them. And now, lads, let no man draw an arrow. You will but hurt friends. Take to the steel, and keep to the steel, and if we have the uppermost, I promise every man of you a gold noble when I come to mine estate. Out of the odd collection of broken men, thieves, murderers, and ruined peasantry, whom Duckworth had gathered together to serve the purposes of his revenge, some of the boldest and the most experienced in war had volunteered to follow Richard Shelton. The service of watching Sir Daniel's movements in the town of Shoreby had from the first been irksome to their temper and they had of late begun to grumble loudly and threaten to disperse. 
the prospect of a sharp encounter and possible spoils restored them to good humour, and they joyfully prepared for battle. Their long tabards thrown aside, they appeared, some in plain green jerkins, and some in stout leathern jacks. Under their hoods many wore bonnets strengthened by iron plates, and for offensive armour, swords, daggers, a few stout boar-spears, and a dozen of bright bills, put them in a posture to engage even regular feudal troops. The bows, quivers, and tabards were concealed among the gorse, and the two bands set resolutely forward. Dick, when he had reached the other side of the house, posted his six men in a line, about twenty yards from the garden wall, and took position himself a few paces in front. Then they all shouted with one voice, and closed upon the enemy. These, lying widely scattered, stiff with cold, and taken at unawares, sprang stupidly to their feet, and stood undecided. Before they had time to get their courage about them, or even to form an idea of the number and mettle of their assailants, a similar shout of onslaught sounded in their ears from the far side of the enclosure. Thereupon they gave themselves up for lost, and ran. In this way the two small troops of the men of the Black Arrow closed upon the sea-front of the garden wall, and took a part of the strangers, as it were, between two fires, while the whole of the remainder ran for their lives in different directions, and were soon scattered in the darkness. For all that the fight was but beginning. Dick's outlaws, although they had the advantage of the surprise, were still considerably outnumbered by the men they had surrounded. The tide had flowed, in the meanwhile, the beach was narrowed to a strip, and on this wet field, between the surf and the garden wall, there began, in the darkness, a doubtful, furious, and deadly contest. The strangers were well armed. They fell in silence upon their assailants, and the affray became a series of single combats. Dick, who had first come into the melee, was engaged by three. The first he cut down at the first blow, but the other two coming upon him hotly, he was fain to give ground before their onset. One of these two was a huge fellow, almost a giant for stature, and armed with a two-handed sword, which he brandished like a switch. Against this opponent, with his reach of arm and the length and weight of his weapon, Dick and his bill were quite defenceless, and had the other continued to join vigorously in the attack, the lad must have indubitably fallen. This second man, however, less in stature and slower in his movements, paused for a moment to peer about him in the darkness, and to give ear to the sounds of the battle. The giant still pursued his advantage, and still Dick fled before him, spying for his chance. Then the huge blade flashed and descended, and the lad, leaping on one side and running in, slashed sideways and upwards with his bill. A roar of agony responded, and before the wounded man could raise his formidable weapon, Dick, twice repeating his blow, had brought him to the ground. The next moment he was engaged upon more equal terms with his second pursuer. Here there was no great difference in size, and though the man, fighting with sword and dagger against a bill, and being wary and quick of fence, had a certain superiority of arms, Dick more than made it up by his greater agility on foot. Neither at first gained any obvious advantage, but the older man was still insensibly profiting by the ardour of the younger to lead him where he would, and presently Dick found that they had crossed the whole width of the beach, 
and were now fighting above the knees in the spume and bubble of the breakers. Here his own superior activity was rendered useless. He found himself more or less at the discretion of his foe. Yet a little, and he had his back turned upon his own men, and saw that this adroit and skilful adversary was bent upon drawing him farther and farther away. Dick ground his teeth. He determined to decide the combat instantly, and when the wash of the next wave had ebbed and left them dry, he rushed in, caught a blow upon his bill, and leaped right at the throat of his opponent. The man went down backwards, with Dick still upon the top of him, and the next wave, speedily succeeding to the last, buried him below a rush of water. While he was still submerged, Dick forced his dagger from his grasp, and rose to his feet victorious. "'Yield ye,' he said. "'I give you life.' "'I yield me,' said the other, getting to his knees. "'Ye fight like a young man, ignorantly and foolhardily. But, by the array of the saints, ye fight bravely.' Dick turned to the beach. The combat was still raging doubtfully in the night. Over the hoarse roar of the breakers steel clanged upon steel, and cries of pain and the shout of battle resounded. "'Lead me to your captain, youth,' said the conquered knight. "'It is fit that butchery should cease.' "'Sir,' replied Dick, "'so far as these brave fellows have a captain, the poor gentleman who here addresses you is he.' "'Call off your dogs, then, and I will bid my villains hold,' returned the other." There was something noble both in the voice and manner of this late opponent, and Dick instantly dismissed all fears of treachery. "'Lay down your arms, men!' cried the stranger knight. "'I have yielded me upon promise of life!' The tone of the stranger was one of absolute command, and almost instantly the din and confusion of the melee ceased. "'Lawless!' cried Dick. "'Are you safe?' "'Aye!' cried Lawless. "'Safe and hearty!' "'Light me the lantern,' said Dick. "'Is not Sir Daniel here?' inquired the knight. "'Sir Daniel?' echoed Dick. "'Now, by the rood, I pray not. It would go ill with me if he were.' "'Ill with you, fair sir,' inquired the other. "'Nay, then, if ye be not of Sir Daniel's party, I profess I comprehend no longer. Wherefore, man, fell ye on mine ambush? In what quarrel, my young and very fiery friend?' To what earthly purpose? And, to make a clear end of questioning, to what good gentleman have I surrendered? But before Dick could answer, a voice spoke in the darkness from close by. Dick could see the speaker's black and white badge, and the respectful salute which he addressed to his superior. "'My lord,' said he, "'if these gentlemen be unfriends to Daniel, it is pity indeed we should have been at blows with them.' but it were tenfold greater that either they or we should linger here. The watchers in the house, unless they all be dead or deaf, have heard our hammering this quarter-hour agone. Instantly they have signalled to the town, and unless we be the livelier in our departure, we are like to be taken, both of us, by a fresh foe. Hawksley is in the right, added the lord. How please ye, sir? Whether shall we march? Nay, my lord, said Dick go where you will for me. I do begin to suspect we have some ground of friendship, and if, indeed, I began our acquaintance somewhat ruggedly, I would not churlishly continue. Let us then separate, my lord, you laying your right hand in mine, and at the hour and place that ye shall name, let us encounter and agree. 
"'You are too trustful, boy,' said the other. "'But this time your trust is not misplaced. "'I will meet you at the point of day at St. Bride's Cross. "'Come, lads, follow.' "'The strangers disappeared from the scene with a rapidity that seemed suspicious, "'and while the outlaws fell to the congenial task of rifling the dead bodies, "'Dick made once more the circuit of the garden-wall to examine the front of the house.' In a little upper loophole of the roof he beheld a light set, and as it would certainly be visible in town from the back windows of Sir Daniel's mansion, he doubted not that this was the signal feared by Hawksley, and that ere long the lances of the Knight of Tunstall would arrive upon the scene. He put his ear to the ground, and it seemed to him as if he heard a jarring and hollow noise from townward. Back to the beach he went hurrying, but the work was already done. The last body was disarmed and stripped to the skin, and four fellows were already wading seaward to commit it to the mercies of the deep. A few minutes later, when there debouched out of the nearest lanes of Shoreby some two score horsemen, hastily arrayed and moving at the gallop of their steeds, the neighbourhood of the house beside the sea was entirely silent and deserted. Meanwhile, Dick and his men had returned to the alehouse of the goat and bagpipes, to snatch some hours of sleep before the morning tryst. End of chapter.